Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by the Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two, whilst occasionally sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing with this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 25th of September 2023. Uh, First things first, podcast walk is this week and it is the what three words is partners perform relief which is funny, and it is at 2pm on Wednesday the 27th. So Wednesday, I think I said Tuesday last time, but it's the 27th definitely, but it was Wednesday the 27th at 2pm, and the what three words is partners perform relief. So let's go straight on to a market that is testing lows in various parts of the world. The UK is holding up, it seems to be just not trading really. The North of England is hungry, they're paying good premiums over futures and wheat is beginning to get dragged from lower areas in the country to go up there so that's where the demand is coming from in east anglia the consumers i think have got a good cover and i think they're okay till christmas pretty well with just little bits to be done i think if a consumer came up and bid one or two pounds under the futures they'd probably buy it the futures are currently trading 188 is the first trade of the morning it's bid there so yeah the market's kind of in the doldrums again i'm afraid but the uk has not gone down as much We've seen a very weak pound as our, you know, we've, oh, Rishi didn't go to the UN thing and then uh, is trying to row back on the green issues to get himself elected, which is, uh, you know, what politicians do, I guess. So not a lot else to report, I don't think. So let's go into prices and then we we might bitch about someone in a minute because I feel like it. So feed wheat, X farm, November 175. If you hold it till May, we'll pay 190 which is pretty good, £15 carry, but the price is pretty flat and pretty boring, hasn't hasn't changed much. Uh, if you look at new crop, we would pay 183x for Nov24, so if that budget's in at a profit and you've got the urge, then fine. And the podcast this week is another conversation about the dynamics of, well, on this occasion it's about the government schemes and the temptation to grow flowers and things like that instead of growing cereals and how much impact that's going to have and that's definitely a big concern there doesn't seem to be joined up thinking so yeah it's going to be interesting if the uk doesn't want to be food secure then carry on i guess we feel it's okay to import from other countries will those other countries stick to the same regimes that our farmers have to stick to is part of the debate so we have a chat in-house but with us we have a guest of uh, henry harrison of brown and co who very kindly came in and gave us some of the figures as we had the conversation so that's quite interesting anyway moving on so nov 2483x farm for feed wheat uh, 200x for june 25 if you want 200x feed barley old crop 160x hasn't moved isn't really doing much there isn't much demand there's a boat in tilby but there doesn't seem to be any local ones around here at the moment it is flat it is boring no one's offering it no one's bidding it no one really gives a damn so there it is 160 i don't see it changing much we'd pay 170x for may so only a 10 pound carry on that new crop nov 160 as well so there's your sums milling wheat premium 60 quid 
good demand for milling wheat. There's a problem all over Europe, and Canada's a bit dry. El Nino is definitely beginning to kick in Australia, although they've got big stocks which are going to keep rolling around the world for a while. But the milling wheat premium itself is definitely getting a thing to consider and looking at new crop that I think there will be good premiums for next year's milling wheat as well. Which leads on to there was an announcement that the Allied mills are going to be supplied by Frontier only, which cuts the trade out. So it's a little bit like landing on, on Mayfair when you're playing Monopoly and there's a hotel and you've got to pay £4,000 rent or whatever it is. As I understand it, they're going to be supplying all of the inputs, all of the advice, so you'll be using twice as much spray as you need to and so on. But it'll help the profits and yeah, reduce income tax for the UK. But that's fine because they do own the mills in, in-house and... You know, we've been talking about it for quite a long time. That isn't going to help the the trade in the south of England much, I don't think. There's some of these some of the smaller merchants have enjoyed going into the various mills for a while, and I think being cut out of the loop is not going to help them. Moving on to Orsid rape, we would be what would we be? We'd be 340 for old crop rate for November and about the same for harvest. Um, our view is there is a shortage of oils and we're going to be importing them. And why would you sell when that's kind of underlyingly there? We've not got a great history in the last 12 months of, of rape trading, but I just feel that is quite low. And yeah, I think I will, I'll leave it at that. My instincts, going back to wheat, is I do think we've got more downside to come in the short term. We keep, we've been saying this for quite a long time now we're waiting for Vlad to do something that makes the market shoot up which he could easily do every time he does something it seems to react and then come back down to where it was before but I think we've got to kind of go through the ringer a bit before we get to a place where the market moves the crop size is being written down by various people there's a 14.3 million ton wheat crop which I feel is a bit light but you know if that those are what the figures are there was an extra half a million tons of carryover from last year which kind of increases the stock There's plenty of wheat there. We do need to have export. There's not as much on the official figures as what people thought. So, yeah, with all of that in hand and us not being competitive export-wise and all this news, you know, mainstream news telling you that Poland are upset with Ukraine, you know, even you guys can work out that that means there is Ukrainian wheat coming into Europe. And if if it doesn't end up in Poland, it goes somewhere else in Europe, which we didn't used to buy and it is an extra piece of supply. And underlyingly, that probably is why our prices are down. So let's not be too shocked and let's be not eternally optimistic. Just say to yourself, there's 10 more months to go before harvest and something will happen in that 10-month period, either geopolitically or with the weather. But in the meantime, in between now and Christmas... I don't think there's a lot uh, on the horizon that we can see, and I think potentially if you need to sell in that period, you may as well shut your eyes and get on with it, in my view. But that, you know, I could easily be wrong by the time this actually meets your ears. So with that, have a great week trading, and we will catch you next week. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications, informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download. And with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 550 or email info at doinggrain.co.uk. And now it's time for the farm chat. 
Right, this week we are going to be talking about the various environmental schemes versus production of food. Following last week's really grown-up conversation, we had lots and lots of compliments, so we're going to try along the same theme to have a conversation that we think is a, is a particular concern for our industry. And this week we've got a special guest with us. We've got Josh and we've got Webby, so hello boys. Hello. Hello. And we've got uh, a previous star of the podcast, Henry Harrison. Hello. And we've dragged him in because his specialist subject is telling farmers all of the various ways they can have money for growing flowers. Is that right, Henry? Not particularly. I mean, I, I don't deal just in isolation in sort of environmental schemes. My role is more for farm business consultancy, so looking at farm finances and trying to drive profitability, risk management, etc. And obviously the environmental schemes play a huge part of that. So I will just outline that we do have a specialist agri-environmental team. We have a lot of crossover but it comes into a lot of play into our line of work. Basically. Andrew probably didn't fairly give you a proper plug there, but you are a land agent, aren't you, for a local Norfolk? No. <laughs> Sorry? No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I a business consultant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I always get referred to or mistaken as a land agent, and I'm not a land agent. I'm not, not part of the red trouser wearing brigade. I'm an agribusiness <laughs> consultant. Very different. <laughs> like that great you can identify identify however you want to so i think the first question that i would like to ask is you know if you go down the route of a i've got a field that isn't very big and i can't get the combine in there without hassling myself too much what can you get paid per hectare for basically planting a load of seeds and then cutting it a couple of times so yeah the starting point is there's a huge different range of options that any farmer can choose to engage with through countryside stewardship scheme and the sustainable farming incentive scheme so depending on one what they want on their farm but obviously looking at the financial arm of it if it's a field that they're going to say long term we're going to take it out in production they might put it into something like well probably a flower and nectar mix which would pay in the region of about 673 pounds per hectare as a flat rate payment per year Now, obviously, there's some establishment costs against that, but provided they've got a reasonable establishment, that should last them for the five-year period. And that's five years? You can't do it just for one year or two years? or You can, yeah. There's a range of, like I say, a range of different options. Some are rotational, some are non-rotational. So the one I mentioned being like a a nectar flower mix or flower-rich plots, that would be a, a fixed option for five years, but you can also choose... A different flower option under the scheme which is rotational and you can move every two or three years and is that at 673 as well no that's that's slightly less that's off the top of my head and don't quote me on this is about 570 well they were increased just recently so it's probably slightly more than that i don't need to quote you because you've quoted yeah. yourself <laughs> and so you're going to be very close to this but you, i'm assuming you guys put the applications in for these stewardships how's the uptake been in the last six months or as i alluded to we've got a team of agri-environment specialists so they do a lot of a lot of this work over the last two years really we've seen a, a massive uptake bear in mind the scheme we're talking about the country stewardship scheme this has been around since 2016 so this isn't new but as we've seen bps fall away we've seen more and more people start to engage with this sort of thing I think the key point to bear in mind is that there's such a huge, vast range of options that can be used rotationally or not, and some which can be used as part of a cropping rotation. And really the way that I tend to look at these things is a bit of a a risk management tool in that way you've got poor performing fields, 
some marginal land, then actually if you looked at your average net return you're getting from farming that land over a five-year period and compare that to what you might be doing through an environmental option, then that's really the start of that decision point. The key behind it is data. If you haven't got the data, you can't make the decision. You're talking about just, you know, how much money people are going to get back from it and that data. Yeah, correct. So the one thing we've been doing quite a lot of over the last few years is actually benchmarking net margin performance of arable crops. So your wheat, barley, zorsi, rape, sugar beet and benchmarking that on a net margin basis. So not gross. This is after all of your whether you're using a contract or your actual labour and machinery costs, etc. So trying to get to a figure which is effectively going to be the amount that's added on to your bottom line, i.e. net profit. And we use that average to compare against what might be available through stewardship or SFI. With half an eye on this whole regen conversation that we're having, have you done any benchmarking or checking of, say, soils and what the contents in the soil is year one to year five? We haven't personally. It's something that I think we're going to see a lot more of. There's the new sustainable farming incentive scheme has got a big focus on measuring soil organic matter. So everyone who's engaging with that scheme will generally now be sampling their fields for organic matter, something which most farms haven't really been doing in the past. So that will need to be done on a five-year annual basis or five-year interval basis. So they'll start to build up a bit of a data set. Whether that you'll see any material difference or not, I don't know. And from what we understand to date, you're not necessarily going to be penalised for not going from X to Y, but it's more just understanding and creating that data set is what is trying to be achieved. Data is going to be massive, isn't it? Skipping back a step. So we've got quite a few listeners within the trade who are buyers. Which buyer of which commodity should be the most nervous at the moment? I think, to be fair, you, and when you say commodity, you're talking mean, about so your wheat, barley, rapes. Which crop is going to come out of yeah. production? So, so generally, doing? from our benchmarking we've done over the last five years, if we looked at crop performance on a pounds per hectare net margin return basis, generally, it's winter barley tends to be the lowest performer. That's within this region, so that's not speaking for other parts of the country, yeah. but generally around Norfolk, winter barley tends to be that lower performer. So, I mean, that's the conversation we've had in the office, isn't it? That the biggest influence on next harvest is going to be, well, it's going to be barley acreage that goes missing. We've got loads of feed weeks. The the, the strong to heavier land is going to continue doing what it does. But barley goes out the window. It's definitely a concern, certainly the marginal lands. You know, if people have been scratching around to make that margin versus 600 quid banker, it seems obvious you know as traders we're looking at you know what is going to influence the market we've got people growing the the crop for the coming season the other thing that which is not relevant to what you're talking about as such but it is relevant in terms of acreage disappearing this is my big fear i think there's i think there's a food safety issue there's a food a lack of awareness at government level of quite what they're doing to production of food and specifically we have a surplus of feed wheat and we have a well, marginal, sometimes surplus of malting barley, and we're going to lose a fair slice of it. One to what's happening here, and two to solar, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a thousand pounds an acre if you can get the planning permission granted without any capital outlay. All right, for tying the field up for twenty five years. Yeah. But that sort of return is going to have a massive impact on land prices, can, keeping them up, and it's going to most importantly reduce malting barley land which, if you're listening, monsters, should be beginning to get you a little nervous, would you? But I think it's not just... I, I accept your point about malting barley. It's going to nip that area up. But I think the whole agricultural or UK production 
of the whole combinables and the roots, you know, is going to come under pressure. Well, the rotation isn't just yeah. going to be barley, barley, barley. You're right. So there's yeah. a, so you take something out for a five-year... But, but we're kind of, we're in that awkward place. You, you talk about national food security and kind of keeping a lid on food price inflation, all that sort of stuff. But every bit of news seems to be eating into area, which in my head means higher prices or importing. Well, the deal that Liz Trust is was like, it's all about food comes from other parts of the world and we're all going to be fine. But where does that actually, as a food security, it isn't food security, is it? No. I mean, yes, the birds and the bees is important. The whole sustainability, looking after land, the regen debate that we had, you know, these are all really important key subjects, but they're not the perfect answer. No. Because it's... We what? don't like the idea of like the rainforest being flattened to import our soil. You know, it's going to say it sort of it comes down to competition for land use, doesn't it? In that we've got, like you say, solar. We're talking about in, environmental crops through stewardship or or SFI, and then they are generally sort of more temporary, short term agreements. But then you've got longer term agreements where we're talking about things like biodiversity net gain, which you're talking about 30, 35 year commitments into things like flower plots and and the like. There's also the carbon argument with tree planting. So there's all of these other reams which are at the minute, because they're being incentivised by government or enforced through planning legislation, providing some quite good opportunities for land use yeah. where you're going to be out competing the returns from broad acre farming the, the number that was chucked at us recently and i don't know how fag packety this is but it was between 10 and 12 percent land use change out of you know arable production mm. that's quite a daunting prospect that's a two million ton reduction in in production at the very least from the uk annually yeah and that's that's what it boils down to i think it's Fair to say, the majority of particularly farm businesses we deal with are very much farmers first and biodiversity, everything that comes with that is very important to them, but their business is built around producing food and that's what they remain wanting to do. It's cases where you see that transition in generation or either farmers got to a certain age where he's wanting to slow down and there's things like countryside stewardship or other land use changes which can provide let's be blunt a much easier way of life less stressful guaranteed income for probably better or if not similar returns to what he might have been already getting there's a generation that aren't going to be quite so tied to determinedly sitting on a tractor or being a farmer they're quite happy to have a job elsewhere i mean you're a farmer's son you could demand to drive a tractor if you wanted and you've chosen not to haven't you (laughs) yeah exactly there's enough of them kicking around there to, to drive them anyway, so uh, <laughs> I'll keep myself occupied. Isn't it the fact that the intelligent ones go away and get a job? Yeah. <laughs> Ian there insulting most of our customer yeah. base. Yeah. <laughs> I hope yeah. my little brother's listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he's a very good tractor driver. Yeah. He's, certainly, he's certainly a very good boss, isn't he? The way he's got hands on hips and put... Yeah, anyway... Yeah. I think the seriousness of the uh, of the debate hasn't quite reached Rishi's ears, though, has it? He's trying to get food inflation down, and by the process, he's reducing the amount of supply and relying upon imports, which in itself, you, okay, I've mentioned this so many times, look at history, that's a really bad model for an island, because they can cut you off if you want to get a supply of grain. You can sink a ship, which we all know from the Ukraine. So it's you know looking longer term, a serious long term. One question I have, Henry, is... If someone just said, right, okay, if I, do I get extra money if I plant trees? Why wouldn't a farmer just go and plant a load of trees for 10 years? 
I think the important thing to bear in mind on that is firstly the capital value of their farm, their land. The moment you put trees on it, that's an irreversible land use change. So your capital value's gone from, let's say, £10,000 an acre, whatever it is, down to possibly four or £5,000 an acre, wherever the market is. So I think that's a pretty key thing to always bear in mind, is that you, first and foremost, you've got to protect that capital asset. So there's numerous things to bear in mind, really. So w- woodland is, you can't, once you've put trees in, you can't change it back? Yeah, generally speaking. I think there's some certain exceptions, but in the large majority of cases, once it's planted with trees, that is generally considered irreversible land use. And I mean, they must get a bigger carbon payment because trees are the answer to the planet's trouble, if you believe everybody on TV. Yeah, exactly. So there's talked about it briefly just before starting the podcast, but the Woodland Carbon Code is really what we're referring to, which is where you can sell carbon credits off the back of planting new woodland. The key being it's it's only new woodland. So those lovely farms and estates with brilliant woodland habitats, etc., that might be sequestering carbon already. They won't be eligible to get those payments for carbon sequestered. So you have a big woodland that you, that's been there for 200 years and it's, it's sequestering carbon and there's no credit that you can take for that at all at this moment. Not under the Woodland wooden Carbon Code, only new woodland only. Where that comes into play, and I think, again, we're probably jumping ahead of ourselves, but we think in time, us as farm businesses or advising farm businesses will need to meet the net zero agenda of government, NFU, etc., and where we've got established woodland that is sequestering carbon, then that should come into our carbon calculation on a farm business level, which whether that provides opportunities in the future as the carbon market develops, possibly, but it'll certainly help us get, or you as a business, get to that net zero point. But the point is that, you know, if BA can buy woodland and say, we're sequestering carbon here, I can have another flight to New York... That is definitely, you know, it's clearly that is doing exactly what everyone's dreaming that that needs to be done. And yet there's no, it's just going to sit there as woodland and that's the end of that as we stand. Yeah, exactly. There's been various stories of large companies, more so in the north of the country, buying significant areas of land and, as you say, planting with woodland. And there's an element of sort of covering their carbon credit to offset it elsewhere, basically. So I think you've got to be mindful of the sort of greenwashing term, but it's... Yeah, it's developing quite fast. I think the key is just trying to understand how it fits into farming businesses. And there's been various discussions and things released about the potential introduction of the soil carbon code. And that's where it will probably start to bring benefits back to the farmer, which is where we might be able to start utilising the sale of carbon credits for certain farming practices that sequester carbon through the sort of farmed environment. We had an interesting one, a conversation with a mate in the trade yesterday. Was so we talking about all these um, these high um, HLS schemes, whatever the sort of the schemes are. But um, these will naturally be sequestering carbon, won't they? Mm. For let's say the five year period, the government are paying the six hundred seventy three pound hectare. Was it acre? I forget which one. Hectare, 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 yeah. hectare. Who owns? Does the government then own that credit? Could they then offset that to and sell that credit to someone else, or does it come back to the farmer? The argument on that is based upon, you know, it's clearly going to be doing the soil good. The farmer's going to be benefiting from the soil having a rest or having being undisturbed for two to three, four, five years. So it's 
total benefit to the farm in terms of soil health, yeah. and he's been paid for the pleasure of doing it, and mm. the argument the guy had was basically there, the government yeah. should be claiming that cash. There, there would be a rough-eyed calculation of how much carbon offered complete land area, which would be vast. It would be enormous, wouldn't it? But I, th- I think the important thing to bear in mind with that is that these are short-term agreements. So we're talking countryside stewardship agreements going to last five years, so at the end of that agreement, that land could be brought back into production. So whether there's long-term sequestered carbon is probably open for debate. A lot, most of these, well, particularly the countryside stewardship scheme, is with your nectar flower mixes, etc., is, is surrounding biodiversity and improvements in water quality, etc. The carbon argument obviously comes into it. I think the SFI, which has recently been launched and is going to be developed over the next few years, will address that carbon arm much further. There's certainly sort of already introductions of things like increased cover cropping, obviously, and I think as that scheme develops in two or three years' time, we'll see incentives for minimum tillage direct drilling, which should help that carbon sequestration. Fair point in terms of who owns that credit, and I think probably waiting a little bit more regulation in terms of how it should be managed, because bear in mind at the minute, if you undertake a, a carbon audit, the government haven't really put a flag on saying, this is how we're going to calculate carbon sequestered. So until we get to that sort of uniform approach it does feel a little bit like the wild west and we're all very much sort of treading carefully and and not really advising farmers to be jumping into it at this stage totally and i think before you do that you have to measure it now yeah when in theory if you believe everything that's being said this is the worst state the soils could ever be in and have ever been in you'd have to measure it now there's no point measuring it in five years time and then going oh there's this much in there because then that's essentially year zero this is measuring for you know, you're talking about soil sample measurement. Soil sample, yeah. And then, but also, you know, on this direct drilling things, we've had, there's quite a lot of people who have got a lot of data on direct drilling, say, spring barley behind a cover crop. And actually, unless the soil is disturbed and that there's a bit of trash and things removed, the nitrogen content is certainly, we now have proof of it, that it is actually higher content. So in our area, where we're very low nitrogen malting barley, if you're suddenly above 1.6 or 1.65 into the 1.8, suddenly you're missing out on a fairly significant premium. Yeah, I was just going to say that this is where it's going to get interesting in the next few years because the Sustainable Farming Incentive Scheme, I keep talking about that, open, well, it technically opened over a year ago, but DEFRA did a bit of a U-turn of since closed what they opened and relaunched it Monday this week, just gone. So that actually does aim to work a bit more akin with broad acre farming in that they're incentivizing you to do things like companion cropping uh, not using insecticides and will pay a fixed rate per hectare for doing that now the balancing act is going to be how does that affect the quality of what you're trying to produce and if you're getting say 45 pounds a hectare for not using insecticides does that pay off the either yield deficit you have or the quality of the crop you're producing and, and that's the challenge that everyone's got to overcome i think especially if we had an autumn like two years ago where you know it was so dry everyone was planting say wheat behind winter barley and suddenly you see a massive amount of or vice versa seeing a massive amount of admix of any other crop in there that's a problem if you've got a you know malting barley you've got wheat mixed in with it Great. question for you guys is are you seeing demand from your molsters and, and consumers for sustainably produced cereals or, or or seed rape yes not so much rape but on some other things yeah we've been doing a trial for the last year with 15 farms where we've sort of 
been trialing one of the last two years actually so yeah that's coming and ultimately and looking at a premium above what the usual well ultimately do you know what the premium is actually not really there if you can prove there's a way of doing this properly not just using you know abated nitrogen or something then in theory the premium what we're trying to fight for not to sound like you know robin hood but we're trying to fight for it for the farmers to get it because at the moment we've heard of some of these consumers making huge margins based off what things farmers are doing and in our head that's wrong because we ultimately if we can fight for a farmer and actually make an extra certain percentage of what they'd normally get and then charge that to the consumer then that's what we should do and that's what we're aiming towards to doing anyway i mean if there was a magic bullet that enabled people to improve their soil save money save their energy in producing it I don't think there should be, if they're getting the same yield and the same quality, any premium anyway. That's just like perfect. So there's not always a premium for attempting to do things. But in our experience this year, not every farmer in our trial achieved the right product good enough for the actual contract. And it ended up at a you know, discount feed price. And that was as much to do with going through the process of trying to follow a certain regime, wasn't it? Totally. The thing is as well, you've got to take into account Norfolk already has a large rotation on a general rule, doesn't it? It's got quite a lot of crops that we follow. But if you could take a whole farm approach, not just because at the moment there's a one crop approach, spring barley, wheat, rapeseed, you know, sugar beet, whatever the hell it is. If you could do a whole farm approach and go, look, we put cover crops in, bare soil, there's always some kind of crop on top of it. Maybe even planting spring barley with clover, you know, in between to try and catch some nitrogen in the air. There's definitely an argument there, but it's about trying to find the right formula. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. It's got to be looked on a whole farm basis. It can't be looked on an individual crop basis. Well, you couldn't grow spuds on the basis of of calling it environmentally friendly or sustainable, could you? Because by definition, the soil is totally disturbed. Unless you unless you do the earth to soil, no, Abe Brand. I've uh, since our last podcast, I was a bit of a Norman. I've got. I went and bought. Gay brown dirt soil. I've got a copy of it already. You could have borrowed it. And it's my my missus talked about it, and she's like give me a hard time because I dismissed it a couple of months ago but yeah he I mean he's got his system basically puts spuds down and then puts alpha alpha bales over the top to create effectively create an artificial bork the one thing I thought after the reading that book yes in North Dakota it works perfectly well because eight months of the year you're in frost so if you try and do that in you know in Trimmingham on the North Norfolk coast and you say okay I'll tell you what we won't spray anything there'll be no insecticides you can't rely on there being eight months of no growth because the stuff's minus seven or minus 22 or whatever, which kills everything. So when it wakes up in the spring, he's got bare soil and he plants stuff into it. And hey, it's really great. My soil's gone 55 inches because I'm the grid. And it's like, yeah, great. That works in North Dakota in a certain climate, but an absolutely temperate climate will not work. But I think where I see it working is it's a hybrid of that. You know, the UK needs to adapt to a model that is in the middle, not cutting out all the sides, like just using a moderate amount of all the pesticides, sexicides, fungicides, and being more targeted, use more organic matters. I think that comes back to the product accepted by i mean the molster saying no that stuff doesn't make it you did regen unlucky the product's no good and that's been the same with potato it's been trials done with that with a farm we know where they went down a route to try and do this marvelous regen thing and the skins weren't right and so they lost a massive premium and they lost they took the, the loss on it the consumer goes oh no it's not up to our spec sorry Oh, so the farmers took the hit on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, the same okay. as the molding well, values. Yeah, the molster we're doing the trial with has gone, oh, no, yeah. sorry, not up to spec. 
And it's like, oh, good for you. I'm really pleased that you're quite happy to just walk away from it because you've asked someone to do something in a trial. And, and you know, it was planting into a regen scenario nice. where the barley competed with weeds more than it probably should have done, but it, it still did. It wasn't fit in time. It got the bad weather. And when he finally came to cutting it, it was shagged. Well, we yeah, we had, so we had 15 farmers and oddly... All the ones that actually passed were the ones who farmed in a traditional sense. And all the ones that failed, some were very, you know, perfect to the book and they were awful. But the others were, some were good, but largely not so strong. The challenge is always going to be is that farming is so volatile, let alone commodity values, input prices, but also obviously seasonal. And what might work as, if we term it regen, i.e. reduce use of insecticides, direct drilling might work in one year and we produce a quality product in another year it just won't be the right thing because the, we might have a horrible autumn or what have you so how the market reacts to that i don't know but that's why we're having to have flexibility within this government support which is something i think likes of nfu in, in the past lobbied quite hard in saying it was too stringent if you can't deliver it in one year you ultimately forfeited your payment. So now it's based on a level where if we say we're not going to use any insecticides on well, we're not going to use any insecticides on our spring barley. So we say, right, let's we've got 30 hectares of spring barley. We'll receive the £45 a hectare payment on that. The challenge comes is in the detail of saying, actually, we've got to deliver at least 30 hectares of no insecticide crop within a year. For whatever reason we can't, we have to do at least a minimum of 50% of that 30, so 15 hectares. Okay. Yeah. So whilst you have to try and design that scheme in a way that it can always be delivered, things will always come down the line with weather, etc. Mm. that might make that a challenge. And it's having that flexibility is going to be key to making it work for any business. So £45 a hectare on a spring barley crop, which is on a six tonne a hectare, is going to be £7.50 a tonne, which if you look at the malting barley premiums versus feed this year, it's £100 a tonne. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be taking an enormous risk to potentially lose £92.50 a tonne, which is completely and utterly nuts because the consumer won't accept the product shriveled up because the aphids have sucked it dry or it's got whatever virus it's got. You know, this is great, but it boils back down to the consumer, and that's ultimately the people who blame everybody else, i.e. the real consumer. Mm. It's everybody else's fault. And the actual consumers that we're dealing with turning around saying, well, that's too thin, that's too high nitrogen, that's got too much muck in it, that's whatever, you know, it's not fit. We've evolved to produce a perfect product through using a can, and that perfect product is the benchmark by which they're still buying it on. They're not going to alter that. I think from the consumer's view as well is actually given what we've seen over the last few years with increased pressure on active ingredients you've only got to look at the whole neonics thing with sugar beet is how long into the future are all of these insecticides going to be available and I think whilst you've got that tool to use then it's great we can continue to produce that homogenized at least to an extent quality product but we've got to bear in mind in the future we might not have that available and that's where consumers, molsters, have got to be realising that. Definitely. I think we were discussing this with a farmer in last week who was talking about analysing the nutrients within grain. Now, could you argue that someone that uses less herbicides or a weaker percentage or pesticides or whatever they are, compared to one who does it exactly as their agronomist says, is there a nutrient deficiency in the one that absolutely whacks it on? 
is there? You don't know. Yeah, and then because exactly. he was also debating the fact that how Western diets, it's probably going to go down very well with the seed trade, but Western diets are the gut health is poor because a lot of these flour varieties are pushed by a lot of millers for whiter, whiter bread. And then you suddenly start going to an older variety and the people's gut health does improve. Mm. So is there a thing for looking towards something where you use less strength? Gluten, isn't it? It's, it's gluten. gluten, yeah. It's just gluten. Every yeah. varietal choice by the major seed breeding companies has been towards gluten, towards a market for the miller. Now, you're right, it's gluten intolerance and diabetes directly linked to that issue. So, yeah, I think we have got it wrong. It's like anything in major industries. It's influenced by major companies in their commercial interests, and which is fine because that becomes the leader but you do need a level of awareness at government to at least say hang on a minute there, there's a link here what why why are the seed varieties why is that list that's done by the hdb why, why doesn't that have some thinking about actually gluten isn't the most important thing on the planet here we want to have some bread that's got less gluten in it that still produces a good standard loaf it's the lack of foresight on, you know, there really isn't any real thinking going well, on. If you look at just Italy, for example, how heavy they're based on so much gluten, pasta, pizza, you know, all of their things. And they've got less diabetes, older dumb varieties are in the UK, we're all, and America as well, poor diets. Crappy, crappy, is crappy bread. Well, I don't know. Not, I don't think it's crappy bread, but it's probably these new different varieties, newer varieties coming through with higher gluten content. Now, how many people do you know are celiac? Really? It seems to be going up, doesn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. not going down. Maybe that's because more people are getting Munty. tested. Munty. Yeah, Munty. He has to drink JD and Coke all the time now. Poor <laughs> <old> boy. <laughs> I think that the frightening thing for me is just the lack of thinking. I keep, I keep coming back to that point. I'm drumming on and on about it, I appreciate. And somewhere in the near future, the government, the AHDB, the farming lobby, someone's going to turn around and say... You know, we're being asked to do this. We can't spray. We can't do these things. Molster's going to say we can't take that barley because it's too thin. Oh, and look, that particular molster's importing barley from another country. And they can spray those things because we've already got that on all seed rape, haven't we? You know, so if you're going to tie everyone's shoelaces together in this country and you're going to pay them money for growing flowers or let them have lots of money for solar, which is an obvious choice then you're going to end up in a position where if your government isn't bright enough to say, well, actually, the quality of what we're supposed to eat is set by this standard, which we're telling our farmers it needs to be, but we're prepared to import Australian cheap barley and the molster in this country is prepared to use it, where do we stand as an industry then? You might as well just go to solar across the board and be done with it. We'll use the bins as, I don't know, holiday homes or something. <laughs> That'd be a proper holiday let out there, wouldn't it? <laughs> No, I couldn't agree more. It comes completely down to, like we said at the start, competition for land use, UK food security, and, and ultimately us importing anything that's not being produced in this country. And, and that is, I think, a concern because as we see these things develop, there's no doubt there's going to be a contraction, to what extent we don't know, but a contraction in land that's being actually farmed. Now, what that means in terms of trade deals being struck at the minute, we don't have to go back that long where we actually saw empty supermarket shelves, etc. The government seemed to have forgotten that quite quickly. And we've gone back to a very much nature first agenda. Yeah, like we ran out of tomatoes earlier this year, didn't we? Well, it's, I mean, yeah, there is that moment is coming, but we can buy it from Australia, we can buy it from other countries, and we won't be starving until they won't let us have it because they're actually short themselves. But that's back to that short-sightedness. Let's just ask you a quick-fire kind of 
You've got your sums on what works, what doesn't. Malting barley on light land, which isn't yielding that well. Winter barley is the first to go, which takes out the rotation for the following crop and the following crop, so there might be less wheat. What would it take price-wise for it to be viable, or would it, what would it take on the wheat price for it to be, do you know what, we're going to go wildflowers on that as well? You know, at what point? So you've only got to look what we've had over the last... 12, 18 months really with obviously impact to Ukraine, unprecedented levels. We're probably not going to see that anytime soon as you guys would no doubt tell us. But when we're looking at margins like that, environmental stewardship, countryside stewardship, SFI taking bits out of production cannot compete because there was some real margins being generated where yield was there and the crop was marketed in a reasonable fashion. I'm not going to put my finger on a particular price, but generally... um, I think over the last couple of years, we've seen margins that, and I think breaking it down, wheatland, you can rarely see stewardship options outperforming wheat margins. Okay. I think if you're looking at average yields of seven and a half tonne a hectare below or in that sort of region, you'd have to look at it pretty closely. But generally, I think if you're sort of that eight tonne a hectare, eight and a half tonne a hectare plus, you should be quite comfortable in, in being able to outperform on average over a five year period. Mentioned the winter barley again, completely down to yield, much like all farming is. Another one that we've seen not so much in this or this part of Norfolk, but you go down sort of south of Norwich is seed rape. That's coming under a lot of pressure. That is in this part of Norfolk as well now. It's getting chomped away by flea beetle. It's That's where generally what we, when we look at this, we're not saying um, we always are wanting or I'm always keen to look at keeping businesses producing food that's a very key message i want to get across but we're looking at trying to bring environmental options into the rotation on a short-term basis to increase the overall net return that that farm is getting across a five-year period so we're not saying take whole fields out whole farms out that has been done in cases there's whole farms gone into environmental crops but generally speaking, we're looking at individual, either annual or sort of two-year legume fallows that might be there to hopefully also help enhance the yield on that following wheat crop. Yeah. So it's looking at it on a rotational basis, basically. So I know you're not going to be drawn on a price, but <laughs> eight and a half tonnes a hectare, North 24, 185x farm, that's going to be about 1,500, 1,600 quid a hectare gross return. Is that enough to be above the breadline? I'm not going to give you an answer because ultimately every business is different. No one's got the same fixed cost base. If you're using a contractor, you'll have a different fixed cost base. Everyone's bought their fertiliser at different values. So we would always look at this on an individual farm basis. So I'm not going to answer that one. You should should be prime minister. That's good. I tried you twice. But I think people out there are listening and you can do your own sum on this. That's the value of Nov24 Wheat. Does it work? Doesn't it work? Probably it breaks even at that level if you're getting eight and a half tons a hectare. So yeah, that is worth getting out of bed for. Would you make more money if you had it in flowers and you write the upfront cost the first year and then you got your lawnmower out like Forrest Gump and went up and down all day long, you've got to do something, then you probably would make more money with the flowers, wouldn't you? If you really were able to strip the other costs out, you know. And that's, that's the key is, is if you went down that route, particularly on a large scale, it's stripping that cost out because there's no point in saying, okay, I'm going to put half my farm down to wildflowers and keeping a combine, a load of tractors machinery cultivation equipment in the shed because you've still got to carry that cost 
yes, you might not be running it, but it's still depreciating. And that's still actually going to be a physical cost to your business. And I think there's also the psychological element that farmers are farmers Mm. and they like to farm, which I get. This generation. I mean, we talked about it earlier. You talked about the whole solar thing. And yes, financially, it stacks up and it's probably double, treble the return of a cereal crop. But do they really want to be walking around their solar Mm. farm? Probably not. Polishing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a bit of both. It's taking a little piece out of every section of it, really. Okay. I mean, so I think the answer this podcast, and we really appreciate you coming in and letting us put you on the spot, if you like. But you can see how our little uh, it isn't just me and you having a chat this time. There's more input as a live conversation about the subject. It's trying to ask the questions that everybody's kind of asking and trying to put out there to people who aren't in farming the real dilemma about what what we face and then the longer term picture of the future of production i mean if we if we're going to see a 10 percent reduction in cereals in the uk that's a direct impact on my business 10 percent of my tonnage going missing 10 percent of my income going you know do i need as many stores what do we do in terms of malting barley? Do we think, Christ, that's going to be short next year, let's buy the hell out of it? All of these things, the mystery is beginning to clear as time goes on and the weather will have an impact on that. But it is a very live and very, very important conversation. And I think the biggest problem we face is that the guys at the top, the guys who actually impact the future of what we do as a strategy, seem completely and absolutely unaware of the of what they're doing in terms of food security i think with that we'll sign off unless anyone else else to say so thanks very much for listening i hope you found this one as informative as last week and thanks henry harrison thank you for having me cheers henry thanks for listening make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and when they are released and follow us on twitter and instagram we are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 550 or email info at uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio, a full-service creative agency specialising in websites, digital marketing and branding. Get in touch to inquire with their friendly team on info at uk.